Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, November 30th, 2020. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So uh, we've had uh, some days off for Thanksgiving, and a lot happened uh, over that time. We have... uh, Questions about the uh, theoretical surge in COVID cases accompanied by the actual fact that if you look at the data, they don't look so bad. Uh, And that the data that look bad involve so much increased testing that that the numbers, the case numbers are much higher. But we do not have, after the last five or six days, an accompanying rise in the death toll though we are hearing that there's increased hospitalizations and stuff like that. But as we know, sometimes though those reports are weird and fractured and they, 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 they're not, you know, they're not sort of systematically statistically valid. Uh, so, and we have really good news about the vaccine. Moderna is now applying for emergency uh, application of their vaccine. And we already had this with the, Pfizer vaccine uh, and the Moderna vaccine in particular seems to not only have uh, great results in terms of vaccination, but it's actually also a treatment for the disease when you have it and is much more readily or easily storable So uh, than the Pfizer vaccine. So these are all very, this is all very good news. Um Anybody want to, I mean, so I don't want to be a meliorist, but I think Noah and we were looking at this and saying, everyone's just been saying, oh, everything is so terrible. And I don't, maybe it's because we lived through a, a genuinely terrible period here in New York, you know, seven months ago. Uh, but we're not seeing the increased case numbers translate into some kind of a nationwide disaster? Well, we're not seeing increased case numbers. Since November 25th, there's been a profound decline in the number of cases, just working off the New York Times dashboard. On Wednesday, it was the last time I checked, it was up, the 14-day change um, was up 46%, and it is currently at uh, plus eight percent. Hey, no, I just want to chime in because I'm I'm looking at um, uh, Worldometer, and yeah. I see a decline since November twentieth, steady decline. Okay. So it's yeah, it's, I mean, there's ten days, and, and but in Europe, there's like hardcore lockdowns going down, and in Britain, there was a decrease of thirty percent in caseloads, but also everything is closed. Uh, so you know that's probably having a, a profound effect. But the weirdness is that you're just not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to say this. Um, because people are afraid of what you might do with that information, which is the, again, you know, the, the elite panic piece that we published, I think three months ago in James Meggs, um, which dovetails with that phenomenon where people are just terrified of what the hoi polloi will do with accurate information. Um, so, you know, it's too early. We just had the Thanksgiving weekend. Everybody's afraid that Thanksgiving weekend is going to manifest in something, but if it does not, you can be absolutely sure that no one will acknowledge it or address it for fear of what you might do over Christmas. Well, there was a giant, weird, sudden change over the weekend here in New York City where Bill de Blasio announced out of nowhere that he was reopening the elementary schools 
five days a week, a complete reversal of policy, gigantic reversal of policy, snapped his finger, said beginning December 7th, five days a week for elementary students and students with disabilities. Um, This is heartening because it does dovetail with Anthony Fauci saying the school should reopen, Trump saying the school should reopen, Biden saying the school should reopen. All these people saying the school should reopen, and somehow it 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 dawned on Bill De Blasio that this having the schools closed or hybrid uh, was insane and made no sense, uh, and that maybe this is a sign that the politics around schools and the teachers unions and these is 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 really starting to shift. Well, and it should be noted that the the New York reopening wasn't a true reopening in the first place, right? Because a lot of students uh opted out. They had the option of staying and something like two-thirds of them then interestingly white students their parents were more likely to send their kids back to school. So now they actually have the first option to come back 5 days a week. So weirdly there's going to be this re- weird uh breakdown in terms of uh, the socioeconomic groups that are going to be more likely to be in in in-person school. And also a lot of the teachers never actually returned to the classroom. They had a lot of substitute teachers they were using in New York. And then they also had teachers who were doing their teaching kind of virtually. So although it was called a school reopening, it's still not functioning like a regular school, even in the places where it's reopened in New York. So I think there must be a lot of pressure being brought to bear um, by parents on on that administration, but good. I mean, it's long overdue. And and for the districts that have never reopened, that needs to start now. If you want right. to see your kids in school this spring, you've got to start putting pressure on school administrators now. There's an incredible weirdness here because, yeah, parents, two-thirds of parents, or supposedly two-thirds of parents, opted out having their kids in school. The policy of the New York City schools is you can't send them back. You opted out, so you're screwed. They have to stay out. Why? Like under under what yeah, it makes under, no what, sense. under what law does it? Do you say no? I'm sorry. They don't. Schools they don't are have open. Teachers. No, but it's also schools are open. This now becomes truancy. Truancy is illegal. Kids, uh, there is a law that says the children have to be in school until they are 16 years old, both in, I think, in New York State and in the United States. I mean, there isn't a federal law, but there are uh, money, all sorts of stuff is attached to these rules. And they were suspended, basically, through the administrations of this um, the emergency powers that have been vested in nobody by nothing. Uh, but nonetheless, here they are. And so you even have that. Yeah, it's like, no, you can't come back to school because we don't have the teachers. Well, then fire the teachers. I mean, there's a there's a whole thing going on here. But I just think what's interesting is the consensus shifted magically and materially. What happened this month that made it possible for, for this to happen? Would anybody like to hazard a guess as to what happened this month? What happened on November 3rd? Joe Biden won. So guess what? We need to move on. We actually need to move on. And the and the data are no different on November 10th or 20th or whenever it was from when they were in October, which was that the schools are not transmission points. 0.17% transmission a, rate inside the New York City schools. But that followed a spasm uh, of uh, um, among Joe Biden supporters. In Democratic officials uh, towards more restrictions. After, immediately after the election, there was a there was this move towards more restrictions in response to the data. But 
perhaps to other conditions because it wasn't based on the science, right? Well, California, Los Angeles has now put in, is now saying that no one is allowed to go to anybody else's house. Can we just stop for a minute and think about the fact that in the United States, uh, a mayor of Los Angeles has decreed that people cannot visit other people's houses? I think, can they also not um, mingle publicly either, right, with another household, right? I think you get sort of no contact with another household, period. I mean, when Boris Johnson imposed these extremely severe lockdown restrictions in Britain, let's just point out for the record that Britain does not have a written constitution and that one of the weird differences between uh, British conservatives and American conservatives is that British conservatives believe in centralized power, you know, like are believers in the use of centralized power to enforce uh, fairness uh, in their own way, right? That was Thatcher, sort of denationalized business, but nationalized political standards. And in the United States, we believe in a decentralized political process in which government has less power. (laughs) We have these these liberal and left-wing governments that are on the one, that are imposing... um, you know, they, they sound like the dictator and they starting to sound like the dictator in bananas, Woody Allen's bananas, who upon, you know, the, the, the guerrilla leader upon winning the office says everyone will wear their underwear on the outside so we can check that they're changing it every 30 minutes. And the national language will now be Swedish. I mean, it, it none of this follows the science. It's all a kind of, I don't, I, I Somebody explain it to me, because aside from like wanting, not wanting to, I've already, I already said something nice about Ayn Rand last week, so I don't want to do it again. But is it just, is this just power for power's sake? I mean, I think clearly the mayor believes that he's doing something right, and he's, you know, he he will be celebrated for it or something. But I, I I'm, I, I'm, I'm at my wits end trying to understand what I mean, you could, you could, you could assume it's some sort of political posturing, right? Because he, there's nothing actually he can do beyond a few certain things they've already done, um, and it's and improving means re, uh, relinquishing some of the emergency powers that they've had. At the same time, I find it bizarre that the same sort of uh, ideologically motivated group on the left who wants to impose all these res- restrictions but has no real means of enforcing them is con- was convinced for the last four years that that the president who who actually had some enforcement powers was was invoking you know was practicing fascism and, and gonna you know completely obliterate all the rights we had there's a weird sort of way they are play acting because they do not have the law enforcement mechanism in place to impose this they can only do it um, subjectively, which will, of course, prompt lawsuits and has. And, and we should talk about the, the lawsuit uh, the Supreme Court handed down, uh, the verdict it handed down, because it, it has to be play acting. There is no enforcement. And, and it's a weird uh, abdication of responsibility because their role in a pandemic is not to try to enforce these kind of draconian restrictions. It's to persuade the public of the necessity of embracing public health measures. They aren't trying to get the buy in. They're threatening. And that is not the way to handle things. Well, I, you know, I mean, to think about the school closing briefly, to think about the school closing, or rather <clears throat> why you can't just jump right into a into a school if you opted out. 
Um, conceptually, I guess you could think about that. If you were to embrace that sort of policy, you could think about it like an open enrollment period in an insurance uh, you know, situation, because like you can't just have people jump from plan to plan. So people who would be doing so would probably be higher risk anyway, would unduly burden the system. And if you think about it like a resource, like a public resource, um, then you would be unduly burdening the teachers and the unions and the schools by allowing kids to just opt in and out and in and out whenever they wanted to. The burden would be on excessive on the constituents that you're trying to manage here, which are the, the teachers and the teachers unions. Um, you know, so regarding the California move, I much of it has to do with just um, the simple exercise of power. There's no question. But there's also, um, I think Newsom is, is trying to respond to, there is some portion of the population, and we don't know how big it is, but I think it's sizable, um, just anecdotally and just, just from observation, um, that is in a state of abject panic um, and has been throughout this. And, um, you know, in part, we don't know how big a, a proportion of the country that is because that our inability to figure that out, you know, is linked to the, you know, polling failures and, and, and whatever else. So, so no one quite knows um, who thinks uh, what out there. And um, this many months into the pandemic, there's not a lot of room. There's not a lot of places to go to, to, to be policy wise, to be able to, to, to keep saying, yes, I take this seriously. I, I, I take this more seriously. So you, you, they keep, you know, the restrictions keep getting crazier and crazier. You know, what's, what's the next move from here, for example, you know? Um, well, I mean, so there's an effort to get ahead of the virus, right. And to be proactive. I don't think we want government to be very proactive, like proactive is not the verb that I would use for uh, for looking to government action. It's got that slight pre-crime uh, effect, right? So we're going to impose restrictions that may not be necessary in order to achieve a result that we don't know that even that the restrictions can even achieve. That. Yeah, that's us. I agree. But, you know, for example, um, if you look every day, as I do uh, on Twitter to see um, uh, Andrew Cuomo announce the, the daily numbers for New York, right, uh, where test positivity and hospital hospitalizations and, and um, daily fatalities and all the rest of it. Um, every day that he uh, puts up his tweet announcing the, the new numbers, if they're bad, the majority of comments under uh, on his on that tweet are, "What are you waiting for? Lock it all down. Lock yeah. it up. Lock it down." Now, this is again a perfect example of how Twitter is not representative of uh, the population, but it is something. It is a it is a it is a concentrated place of a lot of opinion, and um, it can sway things. And it is reflective of elite opinion. All That's you right. have to do is right <clears throat> go to the the Atlantic's homepage to see why what you're doing is wrong. And why the only solution is for you to, to isolate in perpetuity right. and without any like today. I just just today, literally today, there's a there's a, the front page story. The first story is about how America's pods, your self-isolating pods where you have, you know, a friend or a family that keeps to themselves for two weeks and you keep to yourselves for two weeks and then you interact. Well, that's not good because guess what? You also go to the supermarket, don't you? Right. Sorry then you're not isolating. You literally have to 
to have to wrap yourself in cellophane for two weeks if you want to to be safe. And see, even then, see, I understand this because um, in the world of, uh, let, let's say, uh, what are called uh, Balchuva Jews, that is, Jew uh, repentant Jews who return to religious practice or adopt religious practice. Uh, as you adopt a religious practice, you often look to adopt it more and more and more seriously. That is that, uh, that the restriction that you were imposing upon yourself and the, the laws that you were attempting to follow, you get more and more scrupulous about and then you get more and more doctrinaire about you get more you 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 embrace the restrictions as a kind of liberation in their own form it's sort of like the sonnet you know how how if you embrace the sonnet form as a poet you are capable of achieving transporting effects different from a free verse poem because you are hewing to this 14 line standard that you know that causes you to innovate and create right so so the the world of this kind of penitence has its own logic which is the purer i get the more i am fulfilling my responsibility and that is the logic of pandemic restriction as well that uh what you are doing is walking around saying that guy who's going to the supermarket that's trafe. That's not kosher. That is, you know, and, and, you know, I will not do that. And he shouldn't, if he's part of my community, he shouldn't do that either. But in a world of pandemic, everybody on earth is in the same community. Everybody on earth has the same responsibility to everybody else on earth. And therefore, you know, because of the the fact that they could spread a disease to you. So you are therefore empowered not only to restrict your own life but to insist on the restriction of the lives of others because they could kill you and and so, but the pleasure of the restriction has to do with the mindset of the person who is restricting his own and it is a deep 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 satisfaction like we shouldn't just look at this as panic there's something else going on. It is a, it satisfies a deep human need for order, for rules, and particularly when we think everything is spinning out of control, right? So, and the rules are no. The rules are, you know, yes or no, and basically you go with no because that's the safe, the safer option. Well, and because it's a matter, of, it's literally a matter of life and death when it comes to illness uh, for for people who who get the virus, not for everyone, obviously, but, but the risk of death is always there. Any attempt to discuss the costs, either the economic costs uh, for business owners, the economic costs actually to students who will lose a year of their education. They're starting to tabulate estimates of lifetime earnings that will be lost by this generation of students who miss a year of this kind of lost year. And it's not insignificant. Um, and then there's the mental and emotional health costs, which we are getting a lot of really concerning uh, data about, particularly for uh, young people. Um, those things are all still weighed against someone losing their life. And 
it has they reject that um and i understand that very manichaean way of approaching it but i feel like now we're and maybe it is because biden got elected if so great but we now need to start having more and more of those discussions about the mental health and economic health of the country and what we're doing to ourselves with these choices but i think we've been having those conversations well, we have. Interesting. <laughs> no no but i think there there has been a lot of talk about this it just does not seem to have any political Right. Impact in the very places that these sorts of concerns ordinarily would be of obsessive political concern, like general ideas about the psychological well-being of young people, which I would say is something I I don't want to say that, you know, conservatives don't care about psychological well-being. But, you know, like if you're worried about studies uh, and all of that, that say that you know that's that's a that's not the concerns are like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you know suck it up and go on you know like that that would be the conservative cliche right what what's happened here and i think abe is on to something by talking about the the bad social science data over the last eight months is that the feedback loop for american politicians has been there is no cost and there are only benefit or american politicians in blue states there are only benefits in being restrictive there are no costs. And maybe that data is wrong. Maybe those data are wrong. Now, the politicians are supposed to know this better than we. It's like their business and they're supposed to feel it out better. But if they are transported with, with you know, uh, d- dopamine thrills at, you know, controlling the lives of others and they're getting, you know, like very vague data that say that the public supports them and thinks they're great – and there Emmys, is, don't forget the Emmys. Yeah, and there is no feedback loop to stop them from doing things that, under ordinary circumstances, we would say are insane for any politician even to begin to think about saying, like, you're not allowed to see your neighbor. Well, there is, there is also this sort of prohibition era hypocrisy that the leadership cast and people who, you know, endorse these kind of policies do feel themselves relatively exempt from actually having to follow them. There are orders that are imposed on um, people who are much less able to absorb the the impact of them. But nevertheless, just look at how many democratic politicians have been caught up in, you know, scandals involving they're just not following these orders because they're really not for them. Right. And I mean, if you're a university professor let's say when your school is closed, working from home isn't that much of an imposition, but also no one's going to police you. No one's going to stop you from seeing friends, family, from going out, you know, insofar as you can to places that allow it, these, you know, underground restaurants that we've all heard about. Um, but they will stop and will police people on lower, the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. By the way, that includes the Orthodox Jews, and we should move on to the Supreme Court uh, 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 finding, um, because the Orthodox Jews who have been the subject of Andrew Cuomo's particular ire are poor. They are not rich. They are poor. They are the poorest Jews in the country. These are ultra-Orthodox Jews who live very hard-scrabble existences uh, needing a lot of social services and self-appointed social services and all of that. One of the reasons that they need to get out of their house and go into the street or go to whatever, or go to these celebrations, these big weddings, just so I can make this clear, some of these people go to these big weddings to get food, 
there are six, seven, eight hundred people. They have a lot of food. They pack food away from the wet to bring home because they live in three bedroom apartments with eleven children, and the the men often don't work because they're studying Torah and Talmud. And these are not easy existences, and you deny them the communitarian life that helps them get by. And you are, it's not just that you're interfering with their spiritual lives. You are interfering with the very way that they get their social services, that all we ever hear from, you know, left-wing politicians is, what about the social services that everybody needs? What These are all, these weddings are a way for people to get food into their homes to feed their children for days. This is not a joke. So in Ray, the Supreme Court decision that said that uh, the five four finding that 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 overturned I mean I, I can't quite remember what the technical aspects were, but basically said that New York couldn't um, could could not restrict religious uh, services uh, in the way that it was. Um, uh, very interesting cross you know uh, m- much of the attention has been paid to uh, Neil Gorsuch's concurrence. Uh, also by me, because it was just, it's such a, a wonderful piece of writing. And Gorsuch is easily, you know, next to Scalia, the best writer that we've seen on the court in the last 60, 70 years. Um, but, you know, in his concurrence, he made the point that, oh, so it's okay to have acupuncture, but you can't go to church, you know, like that. Um, and uh, Sonia Sotomayor, writing the major dissent in the decision, said, well, you know, uh, if you go to a bike shop, uh, you know, you're not in a bike shop for three hours singing, and that's why we need these restrictions. Um, what do you guys what do you guys make of it? The dissent was fun because it was just designed to trigger every liberal's erogenous zone, where it just attacked the fellows her fellow Supreme Court justices for failing to heed the science or playing a dangerous game. You're gonna cost people lives with this. It's, and what the, the decision found was that you simply cannot impose restrictions on uh, religious practice, which is in the Constitution, by the way, and have different rules for more secular activities, um, which is precedented. There was a there was a district court decision in Kentucky earlier this year that prevented uh, Kentucky Democratic Governor Andy Bashir from closing uh, religious institutions uh, entirely, religious uh, schools, religious uh, practices. Um, because of, uh, you know, whatever the compelling interest was at the moment. It's just, it, you can't do it. Um, so it's not like this came out of nowhere. And the people who are arguing against this, mostly on the left, um, were saying, you know, this is just more culture warring from the right. This is this is bringing the culture war into the practice of law, um, which is a profound uh, bit of projection on their what parts. What Gorsuch said, again, this was not the majority. What Gorsuch said was that uh, the Constitution has taken a holiday during the pandemic, but it cannot be allowed to take a sabbatical. That emergency powers are exist to be, to be levied in restricted time circumstances that denote an emergency, but that you can't then leave them in perpetuity uh, the way that they were being left in, in, in perpetuity. And also, you know, a, a part of the, the decision was not um, um, sort of, um, establishing that uh, religious observance 
has special um, rules that allow it to get by when um, other um, forms of, um, you know, um, sort of congregation and, and, and public meeting um, are restricted. It, it's the opposite. Um, it, it was found that um, the state was punishing exclusively religious organizations well, and, um, and, and making them play by different rules. Well, and that's the part that the thing that was lurking behind uh, a lot of uh, what I was reading from Gorsuch was, what about all the protests this summer? What about mm-hmm. the fact that there were there were plenty of opportunities to enforce the gathering restrictions that everyone had put in place? Um, and not only were they not enforced, but they were endorsed. And further, there any contact tracing in places like New York was explicitly avoided because they didn't want to implicate those those gatherings. So it's not even just that the religious uh, gatherings are considered are, are special. It's that they're not enforcing the rules. And I think this is why when you when we talked a little bit about this last week, when you have emergency powers, you actually have to be even more strict about the scrutiny you give and how they're applied. And that's why I think the hypocrisy of like the Denver mayor jumping on a plane to go visit his family while tweeting that everybody else should stay home. The reason that is much more uh, uh, newsworthy now and noteworthy, and why people get so angry about it is is because these are emergency power emergency powers, and and that kind of hypocr- hypocrisy stings more in a way. And you know, the, the, regarding the, the the encouragement about protests, um, you know, so the the all these public health officials and everyone else came out and said, well, uh, racism is a public health crisis, so. Therefore, it's good. You, you, this is you're 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 doing more good on the on the on that public health crisis front um, that outweighs the the sort of the pandemic. Who can't play that game with religious faith? You 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 can't right, say the fate that, of my soul is a public. That's health right, crisis. <laughs> and, and it's it, it's I'm sure it's demonstrable that if you you know you 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 separate people from their opportunity to to congregate with friends and family and worship. Uh, uh, their God, that, that that doesn't have public health crisis, the consequences. It, it, it does, and we're seeing that. It is also the First Amendment does not have exceptions to it. Right. So freedom of speech and freedom of assembly are what guide the idea that you cannot pre- prevent protest. Freedom of religion is right there. And freedom of assembly and freedom of religion combine to say Government cannot make a requirement that you cannot congregate for religious practice. And again, you know, depending on your faith, again, I don't want to like uh, talk about uh, Jews, the exclusion of everybody else, but religious Jews cannot pray alone. Religious Jews to have a religious service have to have 10 congregants together at a minimum in order to practice the faith in the services that they wish to do. There are all kinds of things you cannot do without 10 men. You cannot bring out the Torah to do the Torah reading. You cannot say Kaddish, which is the more, the prayer for the dead that people are enjoined to do three times a day in the first year after the passing of, a, of an immediate family member. That cannot be done. Now, there, thing, people have now loosened some of these restrictions because, you know, but I mean, literally people say, I cannot say Kaddish. I cannot say Kaddish. Yeah. It was my understanding that the decision advocated 
um, or tacitly endorsed uh, the uh, just a, a uniform uh, restriction on uh, open spaces, for example. So I think if I'm remembering this correctly, and I could be misremembering it, um, that they were talking about how you know certain institutions like a, a church can hold a thousand people and certain churches can hold ten people, but you've re- restricted them not based on their interior space as you would any right. other institution, but just because they're religious practices, and that is the disparate enforcement of law, right? And or then, and then executive order, right. emergency order, whatever we call it. But then people say things like. Well, don't be ridiculous. Of course, going to church, people are going to sing. Singing causes expectoration, you know, mist from people's mouths and 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 saliva and stuff like that are what transmit the disease. So therefore, uh, churches are, are, you know, bike shops, which are, remain open. People don't go into bike shops, stand there for hours and sing. Okay, but, you know, Rabbis and priests and people like that do not want people to get sick and die in their congregations. They can handle the science better than Andrew Cuomo can by saying that they cannot do anything because he is not al- he is not allowed to say they cannot do anything. Again, it depends on the religion. If you're a radical Protestant, you don't actually have to go to church. If you are an, a, an Orthodox Jew who has to do certain who has to perform certain kinds of religious ministrations in order to profess your faith you have to be in a congregation of at least 10 people that is you know pandemics or no pandemics that is that is jewish law and that are, we this country exists in order because people tra- traveled somewhere because they were unable to practice their faith. You know, I know that's the 1620 project is people coming and, you know, and they may not have been nice people and they put people in stocks and they killed witches and they did whatever, but they came here in order to freely profess their faith. And 400 years later, Andrew Cuomo says, blow you. So I can build my mountain and write my book and then have my children and mother at my house for Thanksgiving. Okay, let's take a break and let me talk to you about our new sponsor, the Bonson Group. Because look, I'm just going to straight shoot here. The vast majority of professional financial and investment advice is awful. And that is true for a number of reasons. Most financial advisors are lazy, they're disengaged, and they're uninterested in the real work that is required of properly stewarding their clients' assets. I have it on good authority that a very high percentage of those making a very good living as a, quote, professional wealth advisor, unquote, do not work more than 25 hours a week. But then you get into the important stuff, their understanding of how markets work, the intersection of public policy with investing, the relevance of monetary policy and the Fed in modern finance. And you may as well be talking to a teenage kid at a coffee shop. In summary, <clears throat> the work ethic and the intellectual capacity of so many financial professionals leave a lot to be desired. But this is not the case for the Bonson Group a bi-coastal wealth management firm with over $2.5 billion in assets under management, where every single day is an intellectual journey, where client communications are a way of life, where every bit of their perspective on the economy and capital markets is their own fresh resource and opinion, and where every client is given their own bespoke family office experience. Read their weekly investment commentary at dividendcafe.com. Read their daily market updates at thedctoday.com. 
and check out the Bonson Group for a refreshing antidote to the laziness and intellectual spaghetti that is today's investment advice industry. That's the Bonson Group, where an actual economic worldview sits on the foundation of the best investment advice in the industry. Check out DividendCafe.com and the DCToday.com and get to know the Bonson Group today for your wealth management needs. And thanks to the Bonson Group for joining the Commentary Magazine podcast sponsor group. All right. Uh, so there was a lot of shrieking and wailing and the gnashing of the teeth uh, Friday, I think, when uh, the news came that on the streets of Tehran, uh, Iran's top nuclear scientist, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, I believe that's Fakhrizadeh, was assassinated on the street in Tehran. Uh, oh, the rending, the wailing, the gnashing of the teeth. Unbelievable. Former CIA director John Brennan calling this a horrible violation of international law. Uh, the entire uh, echo chamber, of, including the father of the echo chamber, Ben Rhodes, of the uh, Obama foreign policy coming out to cry bitter tears over the horrendous uh, transgression of international law involved in um, what is now presumed to be Israel striking at, uh, for the umpteenth time, doing what it can to, uh, to retard Iran's nuclear program by eliminating the Iranian brain trust. I believe this guy is the seventh Iranian nuclear scientist to be assassinated in the last decade. And uh, so uh, I, uh, we published a piece, Abe, right, a couple of issues ago called uh, How Israel Helped Save the World by Josh Moravchik. Uh, the, the idea behind this piece was that nobody is giving credit to Israel for the fact that uh, it is it is a one nation nuclear anti proliferation device, better than the treaties, better than anything else. We now have three nations whose nuclear ambitions have been retarded by Israel systematically over the last forty years. Iraq with the destruction of the nuclear reactor there, Syria with the destruction of the nuclear, the aborting nuclear reactor in 2007, and Iran, the systematic cyber war, and I have to say, I mean, it's a terrible, but targeted use of the elimination of the Iranian nuclear brain trust while the rest of the West turns a blind eye, says it's worried about nuclear weapons, and does nothing. Not, not just turns a blind eye. The, the West condemns them every time. Um be- beginning with uh, Osirak in in the the the, the um, Iraqi um, uh, nuclear facility um, back in the early eighties, um, every time they do this, um, they 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 prevent the world's worst actors from having the most deadly weapons. Um, they are slammed, and there is there is you know outrage uh, among elite opinion. So this is this is no different. I mean, this is different in that people are um, forcing this into the Trump Biden uh, transition paradigm now. That that this is um, um, Trump's way of sort of you know uh, uh, f- f- making making any um, reconciliation 
that Biden that the Biden administration would have with Iran impossible um, by by pushing things to this level. But uh, the truth is, I mean, this may be something you want to bring up, John, because this was your point. We were talking about it yesterday. Um, w- when things like this happen, they happen because, say, Israel sees an opportunity. Um, they have a small window to 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 um, target someone that they know is critical to the Iranian right. program. And this at, is a vi- this yeah, is a vital yeah. point because this notion is oh they could do it anytime so right. they did it now in order to constrain Biden's options. Right. I do not believe based on what I know and I what I know is only stuff that I read but I mean I think the chances are it's more something like this. They get some piece of intelligence that has to be op- acted on in 11 minutes. Yes, they have team uh, the amazing thing is how apparently incredibly penetrated Israel, you know, how Iran is by Israel, whereas, as Rule uh, Gerecht says uh, in a piece in the Wall Street Journal today, we there's no evidence that we in the United States have any actionable intelligence on the ground in Iran whatsoever. But Israel steals a gigantic cache of documents from Iran and brings it out and shows it to the world. Israel has, you know, does these targeted assassinations inside Iran. Like, Israel is on the ground in Iran. But what that means is... You got a call that says, uh, you know, uh, Fazideh is going to be at the intersection of Broadway and the Avenue of the Martyrs in 12 minutes. Move. And then they have they've they've done all these exercises for years on how they might do this on a street. And then they do it. And it's not like they're like, oh, you know, we can do it today because that's how we're going to handle it. And that's, you know, in order to screw Biden and the JCPOA. Uh, the idea is that it, they, they can't just do this at will. These guys are protected. He was in a he was in a, a motorcade entourage as it was, apparently. So uh, and he had to get out of the car. I mean, according to these stories, who knows if they're true? Because this comes from Fars News, which is you know not necessarily accurate. But he had to get out of the car and then was shot because he thought the car had been somehow, uh, you know, uh, hampered in some fashion. Anyway, that's my take. My take is that 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 is America centrism at its most deranged, where it's like everything involves our political schedule, as opposed to the fact that what we know about Iran the U.S., Israel, and, say, the Saudis, is that uh, over the course of the Obama administration, it became clear to Israel that uh, that that they had to, they were going to have to take charge of their own destiny in relation to Iran because the United States was either not going to help or was actively going to hurt by, by, by agreeing, as they did in the Iran deal in 2015, to an eventual Iranian nuclear weapon. Well, doesn't that... That sort of contradicts your your theory here that we, in this case, we really do hold the cards and call the shots via action or inaction. The reason why Israel feels insecure enough to engage in these operations is because of the people who are in a state of mourning now over this nuclear scientist. They're the architects of Israel's insecurity. No, but Israel has Israel has fashioned its own set of policies toward Iran. And has and has been acting on them for a decade, uh, an activist interventionist policy to retard Iran's nuclear ambitions. That it knows that at least the United States either 
opposes or does not wish to actively engage in, in, in itself. So the Obama administration didn't like that Israel was doing this. And apparently the Trump administration likes that Israel is doing it. Neither wants to be the, you know, neither wants to be the, the primary actor. But, but the irony of the, in the domestic political context, the irony of the Ben Rhodeses of the world, you know, tut-tutting these actions by Israel when, in, when he served in an administration which was happy to do drone strikes and targeted assassinations just as long as it didn't aid Israel, I guess, is the argument. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. It's, it's so absolutely hypocritical. Um, but it does, I actually think it also just, it, it allows for the media to distract itself from pushing the, the incoming Biden administration about its policies, right? When it, they're not actually asking Biden any tough questions about this yet either. Now, you know, I know it's the transition, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I do think it lays uh, interesting groundwork. And we've seen this uh, on the domestic side already for how the press is going to handle this incoming administration. What do we know about Biden? What do we know about Biden in relation to the point that you have just made, Christine? What did Biden oppose during the Obama administration? He opposed the killing of Osama bin Laden. Right. We know that he was opposed to the killing of Osama bin Laden, which is probably the the mo- the nearest legal, you know, like extra legal example right. Uh, to this, right? Which is, you know, to hear John Brennan, who was then uh, what was he national security? He was he was in the national security apparatus, but was not then CIA director, you know screaming about Israel's violation of international law and the assassination of the scientists. There's no difference with Israel going into Iran and assassinating this guy than America going into Pakistan and assassinating Osama bin Laden. Well, according to Brennan, the difference is that uh, this is when you take out a terrorist, it's one thing. When you take out a scientist, it's another. But if you don't believe that the Iranian regime is a terrorist regime, one that not too long ago was planning a strike inside Washington, D.C., um, then you have no business in the intelligence community at all. Yeah, well, I mean, I will yeah, and, Bren- and Brennan had a problem with the legality of the Soleimani strike, too. Of course right. he did. It was, uh, it was on soil where the United States was deployed at the invitation of the host government where it struck the head of a declared terrorist organization, according to the United yeah. States, which had declared the, uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps a terrorist organization. He had the yeah. same objections. Yeah. So he doesn't, it, his, his rationale remains the same no matter what the conditions yeah. are. So moving on, we have... Uh, a bunch of uh, Joe Biden appointments to the cabinet and to his White House staff. Uh, Janet Yellen, uh, former Fed chairman, is going to be Treasury Secretary, as we know. Uh, We've talked about Tony Blinken. um, And uh, we just had this uh, uh, rush of announcements of Jen Psaki as the the communications director. uh, or Kate Bedingfield as the communications director, Jen Psaki as the press secretary, uh, Noah's and my friend from MSNBC, Karine Jean-Pierre as deputy press secretary, um, and of course, Nira, the most controversial Nira Tandon, the head of the Center for American Progress, uh, as OMB director, a confirmable post, and John Cornyn's uh, chief aide, uh, senator from uh, Texas has said that there is zero chance that Yuritana will be confirmed. Why? Because she has one of the worst personalities on Twitter. Twitter's an interesting thing because, you know, people, there are wonderful people that you know, and somehow Twitter just turns them into like they're horrible on Twitter. And I don't know Nira Tandon. 
but I mean, she is horrible on Twitter. Like, okay, she but is- it's not just Twitter. Her reputation in Washington, she's been at the Center for American Progress for a long time. In the think tank world, she also has a terrible reputation. I can attest to that. Okay. She also, you know, the, there are lots of questions about how that center is funded and the kinds of donors she courted. There's a huge uh, sexual harassment issue at the Center for American Progress that she papered over because it was a friend of hers who was accused. It's she, Her reputation, even off Twitter, is not golden. <laughs> okay, so here's a theory. It's probably far too conspiratorial and convoluted, but I'm going to say it anyway. Republicans have a better than even chance of controlling the confirmation process. They're going to want to draw some blood. Maybe this is the head that they get. Maybe this is the sacrificial lamb. They get to say, all right, we killed this one. There's always one, right? Like the Zoe Baird type. Yep. Right. Or Andy Pudzer. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's a confirmation that doesn't make it through. That doesn't get it. Doesn't get past committee. Or even fellows on the floor. I don't think we'll get that far. But, you know, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the, the this is the sop that Republicans get. They get to draw near his blood. Why would she submit to such a thing? Out of- Why would she know she she's submitting to such a thing? She can raise a lot of money off of it later. Why, <laughs> that, that too, sure. But why would why would she even be aware of that? Well, she's aware. Sure she she's thinks a, she's confirmable. She's aware of it enough that she deleted like 10,000 tweets. She did, yeah. She's been- which suggests that she thinks she's confirmable. Yeah, it's Susan. The mean Susan Collins tweet suddenly disappeared in the last forty-eight hours. That I mean, I mean, uh, honestly, I mean, I don't even remember. I just remember sort of like uh, I, I was always astonished at the vitriol of her for a for a, a head of a think tank who was a senior official in the White House to to spew the kind of vitriol that she spewed on Twitter was really striking like it was it was on it's unusual it was unusual how uh, ad hominem uh, look twitter's a bad medium so i'm not going to defend it but i mean there are gradations of this how ad hominem how rage filled um, her stuff was and how and how it seemed like she was presuming that she was never going to go into government again simply by the nature of the violence of the but, you know the sort of rhetorical violence that she was that she was displaying. There's also though some interesting uh, inside baseball on the left here with Tandon and the uh, Bernie faction, the Bernie Sanders faction, right? Because she's held responsible by a lot of Bernie types for being uh, one of the architects of of preventing his nomination from getting through in 2016 for, for being very so pro Hillary that, that there were a lot of backroom dealings and, you know, interparty stuff that was not totally above board. So she, so there is an interesting, and, and we see this also with Yellen appointed to treasury. We don't see a lot of the squad, Elizabeth Warren type lefties getting plum spots yet in this administration. So, which, which is an answer to the question that we've been. There's only with. one, there's only one, right? Simone Sanders, right. who was Bernie's, spokesman who is going to be Kamala's spokesman be or Kamala's Jill Biden's spokesman? Kamala. She's going over Kamala's to Kamala, which okay. I think is yeah. interesting. That's interesting to me. I- yeah. Right. So, so, so there is one Bernie, there's one Bernie bro that got a job, but of course she had already moved to the Biden yeah. campaign. So she was moving from the Biden campaign uh, there. Um, there does seem to be this weird thing going on with the defense department uh, where the first Leaks had it uh, as a certainty that Michelle Flournoy was going to be the the defense secretary, and there seems to be a huge blowback or game being played to prevent that from from happening. 
Um, but for two reasons there, right? It's both a woke reason and a left lefty reason. The lefty reason is that she might have done some work with defense contractors. The woke reason is that she's not black, right? Or is she? I don't know what her no, race is actually. No. But but that they want they want a to- they want a certain racial right. token number of positions, and she doesn't meet the. Okay, and what about this? So I mean, I- I'm enjoying the hell out of this part, which is the yeah the the sort of the fight over the cabinet appointments and how explicit the lobbying uh, by race is. So we have the uh, this group of Latino legislators and politicians saying that there need to be five Latino appointments to the cabinet and specifically demanding the appointment of uh, Michelle uh, Lujan, the governor of... New Mexico as the um, as the interior secretary or agriculture secretary or something like that. Um, that strikes me as being very interesting. I've never seen anything like that. Hell, Lujan Grisham, um, that people would literally say, oh, excuse me, it's HHS. They would literally say, to satisfy us, you must make this one person give this one person this job. Uh, 32 members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Um, kind of striking. By the way, how come uh, we hear that Alejandro Mayorkas, the uh, the appointee for a Homeland Security, uh, Cuban, so he's a Cuban and he got the job and he's the first immigrant. I love this thing also. He's the first immigrant to be, uh, to be the head of the Homeland Security Department. Homeland Security Department... Is seventeen years old. <laughs> it's seventeen years old. So I think there have been like four or five homeland security secretaries. So he's the first immigrant, but he's also a Jew. They didn't say that he was a Jew. It's so weird. It was like he's a she's an immigrant. He's a Cuban. He's an Hispanic. Somehow they dropped the Jew part. Well, that because that makes him illegal. Intersectionality, right? No, that, <laughs> yeah. 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 No, if he's Jewish, then he's then he's it cancels part of the, something the, else out. That's right. It cancels <laughs> it all out because he's part of the intersectional, you know, the 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 intersectional villainy squad somehow. Uh okay. Do we have anything else? I just let them. Let them fight. That's, you know what? We've been spending four years watching Republicans and conservatives fight. Let's, let's have a, let's watch the liberals fight. That's, that's, that's going to be fun. It's going to be fun for some of us. Um, and we haven't even talked about Trump and the lawsuits and everything. Good. Because that's in the rearview mirror. So rearview mirror people. So we'll be back to you tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Pop Keep the candle burning.